Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about um, something that has been in the news a lot over the last week or so, uh, which is Biden administration's decision to impose an end to a potential strike by railway workers in this country. This is something that had been sort of looming as railway workers and the major rail companies had struggled to reach an agreement um, that was satisfactory to both sides in terms of, you know, continuing work on the railroads. Punching out listeners may remember a couple months ago, back in early September, when we had uh, Ross Gruders on the show to discuss their experiences working on the railroads, working within rail unions, and their perspective on the tentative agreement that had been reached around that time. The agreement was reached by, between the unions themselves and the railway companies, but still needed to be ratified by the workers of those unions who needed to approve and majority vote. And the b- largest unions who make up the overall confederation of sorts that uh, is on one side of the bargaining table voted against it. Their members, uh, a majority representing a majority of the workers involved voted against ratifying. And so there was this looming threat of a railway strike, which would have had huge impacts. And the Biden administration decided to take that threat off the table. Um, I'm running out of steam here. Uh, perhaps one nice, of the two of nice. you can. Let's 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 get this discussion back on the rail. Yeah. So, thank you. so the tentative agreement that was reached a few months ago was kind of a PR coup for the railway companies. It represented a, I believe, a 24 percent raise, which they they much touted it as being the highest raise in four decades. It actually uh, capped healthcare premiums for railway workers, which um, as somebody who has had two successive years of 20% increases in uh, healthcare premiums, pretty big deal, not going to lie. And in fact, was something that the president's emergency board, which was largely reputed to be toothless because that's the other thing joe biden already had some direct involvement here where he appointed and paneled an emergency board to try and hammer out this agreement between the companies and the union so the government has been involved in this from the start and uh, the peb actually rejected the railway companies' attempt to make workers pay more towards their health care and they received, I believe it was one extra personnel, uh, personal day, and that's it, which is interesting because as came through in that episode we did with Ross, the big demand the workers had was for paid sick days, which is a thing that I think now something like a quarter of all Americans have access to, 
or have at least seven sick days. The workers were demanding 15 because as of right now, the way railway companies schedule workers, it doesn't matter why you take a day off. It doesn't matter if it's a sick day. It doesn't matter if it's a funeral. It doesn't matter if it's a personal day. You get penalized for it on a point system. And for obvious reasons, this is a terrible way to run any business, and we've covered it with Amazon and other companies. It's especially a terrible way to run a business when you have humans, oftentimes by themselves, running multi-ton steel death machines that require very careful management to not be that. Um, and the so self-proclaimed uh, most pro-union president ever and the biggest trains guy to ever hold the office <laughs> directly involved himself in stopping the strike so that people could get their Christmas presents on time. Yeah. One thing that Ross uh, said in our interview back in September was that they effectively, they were on call 24 seven. Like it, their schedule was such that they might not work you know, seven days a week, but they had to be ready to go into work within, you know, a few hours notice. And to have that sort of responsibility on top of not being able to call in sick, not being able to take a day off because you're not feeling well and maybe not even up to the job, that is absurd. And we said as much on the episode. And what the Biden administration has chosen to do is have Congress impose that agreement, which does not give them any sick days, you know, over the will of the workers. Now, and maybe this is a topic for discussion later in the show. It should be noted the workers could still refuse to work, but at that point their strike would be, you know, quote unquote illegal and illegal strikes can work. But they'd be going up against the uh, Railway Labor Act and how these things are supposed to happen. Yeah, in and of themselves. Yeah, so the timing for Biden's act here in Congress, um, putting its thumb on the scale and basically forcing this contract on people, which is not a good look for capitalism, baby. Like, uh, I thought we were supposed to be entering into contracts as uh, equal partners and not because Congress says we have to take it. Um, that That's kind of messed up. Uh, but the timing is really, um, I'm not going to go so far as to say suspect, but it is convenient for the rail companies themselves. We have Christmas coming up and the threat that shutting down all shipping in the U.S., uh, would absolutely destroy everybody's good day on Christmas. Um, you wouldn't be able to get food necessarily. You wouldn't be able to get your presents. You w- wouldn't have your treats that everybody so so needs. Um, but it's also after the midterms. So Biden did have a pretty successful midterms, all things considered. Like every uh, the red wave didn't happen. Um, I honestly didn't keep track of who won what where but i know that it wasn't as uh didn't go as badly as it could have for the democratic party so we're right back to post-election biden where he is enforcing the status quo on everything 
that nothing can meaningfully change for anybody who isn't already in power. Um, so welcome back, Biden. We missed you, buddy. I think the timing of it coming, you know, shortly after the midterms is particularly noteworthy here because one, the labor movement in this country does a lot to help Democrats get elected. Uh, that's something we've discussed time and time again here on Punching Out. And this is the way they're being repaid. And secondly, like this sort of uh, period between the midterm elections and a new Congress taking office two years away from the next election is like the one like month in American politics where this wouldn't hang over an upcoming election. This is sort of the grace period you have in American politics where there's like, you can kind of do what you want in a way you'll get away with it because nobody's going to be thinking about it when the next election comes around. Now it's been noted that uh, even on our discussion back in September, Ross talked about working on a shutdown car, which is where, the goods on this train are such that if this doesn't arrive where it needs to be, businesses will have to shut down because they just can't do what they need to do without these goods, without these materials, without whatever might be on the train. So that's tremendous leverage that the unions had, but because it's such a vital industry and like being able to strip away their threat of a strike, their ability to strike by imposing this agreement kind of like what are the unions supposed to do to get what they want if they can't use the weapon they have available, which is withholding their labor? Yeah, the thing with this in particular, and they've actually thought of how to defend themselves from what we're all talking about here, that they're kind of in this weird lame duck month where they could do certain things. The official defense of that is that they wanted to block the strike before the new Congress came in because they figured that whatever the Republicans did might be more punitive once they control the House and that they wouldn't be able to get anything remotely friendly to the railway workers that even they could impose anything. And of course, part of that problem is when you exempt certain industries from having legal rights. At the state level, this is incredibly common. There are many places where it's illegal for public sector employees to strike. There are even more where it's illegal for certain sectors within that to strike teachers, firefighters, police, though somehow they manage to do it anyway. Imagine that, wonder why. Maybe it's because they all have guns and they know where the politicians live. But in the case of railway workers, because... so. 1926, President Calvin Coolidge, in one of the few times he apparently said anything, decided to pass this law called the Railway Labor Act, recognizing that a railway strike could be extremely deleterious to the American economy. And back then, people actually, you know, knew about trains. So that was not a that was not a hard sell. Not only did they know about trains, they knew about words like deleterious. I have my doubts, but let's say they did. So in the intervening your know, 96 years up until we get to to this point people don't really think of how vital that sector is to the american economy and i think that has allowed a lot of people um 
to well it's allowed the railway companies number one to get away with cutting massive labor um what is it i think ross talked about this rail companies wanted to go down to one person per train i don't know if that was a demand that they actually got currently safety requirements are two per train and that's not enough i mean i not not to go cinematic here but uh the Denzel Washington movie, Unstoppable, exists. And that <laughs> happened because the railway companies... I'm not kidding. That happened because the railway companies <laughs> cut labor. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah. They, 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 we have a film... Since, you know, with Americans, sometimes you kind of have to be like, imagine if this movie kept happening. Well, there you go. It already did. We made a movie out of it. You're supposed to care now. Figure it out. Get your stuff together. Just to go through a bit of the mechanics at play here, um, we've talked about this as being the Biden administration's move alone, but as with anything else in American politics, there are like seven other checkpoints this had to go through. So what Biden did is last week uh, effectively wrote Congress urging them to impose the current agreement uh, the um, tentative agreement without modification. And even in a statement had noted that there would be some who would call for, you know, increasing sick leave who would want to improve the conditions of the workers, but said this would just be too timely, you know, would take up too much time. You'd run the risk of a strike. We can't have this. We're just going to impose the agreement as it already existed. The agreement that workers voted against. And after having done so, Congress then had to vote on the agreement and overwhelming majorities voted to pass it. Um, There was a break off segment of Democrats who wanted to impose sick leave or wanted to, you know, alter the agreement so that workers would have seven days of sick leave, not the 15 they had asked for, but, you know, a full week at least. And there was a talk of attaching this to the bill of, you know, imposing the agreement and naturally it was treated separately and allowed to die separately in the Senate because it could only get 52 votes out of 100. Uh, There's the math of the filibuster it had. Yeah. Anyways. So that's how this happens. You know, it goes through not just Biden, but a democratic Congress and I, I want to be clear here because we have been talking about the fact that we did an episode already. Um, for the most part, the anger of rail workers right now, as far as we can tell in the articles that you provide, Ryan, is pretty squarely directed at Biden and Pelosi and not so much at uh, individual Democrats. Because, So, for example, it must be mentioned that a lot of progressive Democrats voted to block the strike. Uh, and did so with, you know, uh, some hand wringing and some compunctions, and some of them are defending the move on social media, perhaps more extensively than they need to, and painting themselves into an inescapable rhetorical corner. Having said that, rail workers have pointed out that they, for the most part, and and I think Ross has actually said this as well. I don't have their exact words in front of me, but said that. As far as they're concerned, they knew that this was happening. They knew that that tentative agreement would be imposed on them one way or another, but that they didn't know when it would happen and under what conditions. And that given that they had assumed that they were going to get the exact text of the agreement imposed on them, the fact that some progressives attempted to pass 
seven paid uh, sick days for them, they considered kind of a win that that actually got spoken about and became an issue for debate when it might otherwise have passed by completely unperceived by anyone. So that's something I'm not going to lie. I, I have somewhat of a hard time agreeing, but if it's if that's what the people who are in these unions that didn't ratify this agreement, if that's how they feel about it, then you know, at some point it's hard for me to go against that. They're the to use a term from my industry, they're the subject matter experts. They know what they're talking about and they know how hard it was to get these concessions that they already got. So if they're saying they think this is better than it otherwise could have been, I'm going to say, okay, sure. I hope you're right. Now, just to uh, offer a different voice, uh, there's an NPR article about, you know, this, um, you know, framing it as um, a headline. Some rail workers say Biden turned his back on us in order to avert rail strike. Um, they quote a, um, Matthew Weaver, a railway worker in Ohio, as saying, uh, quote, it feels like President Biden ushered this in a little too early. He kind of cut us off at the knees on our ability to have some real negotiations or real change after voting no. In future negotiations, the carriers are going to remember that and use it against us, said roadway mechanic Reese Murtaugh. It's going to be even harder for us to negotiate a fair contract because they realize when it comes down to it, there's not going to be a strike. You know, like I said, when you take away the weapon that labor has, people notice. And just as the, the workers themselves may have felt that this was going to happen anyways. No doubt the companies knew that too. They knew that Congress would not allow a strike to happen, would not allow Christmas to be delayed, would not allow the workers to really have any impact on the economy. And it's, it's interesting to me that this knowledge is widely understood to be one way that Congress will impose the contract on the workers, but as one person said in one of your articles, it wasn't going to be likely that Congress was going to be asked or, um, yeah, be asked to write a contract that would be more pro-worker because that would be too much government overreach into um, dictating the terms of the business, but they can impose these terms on the workers like that. That's okay. That's not government overreach. That's not putting the thumb on the scale for anything. That's just being a neutral arbiter in this situation. It's, but any doing anything else pro worker, that's too much. It sounds just like Amazon and Starbucks trying to say that the NLRB is uh, too pro worker and therefore should be uh firebombed from orbit um, to quote the business workers, not us. We like the NLRB. Yeah, I think so earlier I was listening to somebody talk about their, um, their experiences in journalism school, right? And talk about how in journalism, you're trained to believe that there are two sides to every story and you as the journalist, it's your job to be unbiased and objective and all that crap that is 
absolutely not true. And what you find out is that, frankly, I think, and and the rail workers have done a very good job of kind of talking about how unfair this agreement is for them and talking about how, I mean, frankly, it's ridiculous that in 2022, if you have a broken leg and you are called to run a train, your choices are not get paid or go into work with a broken leg. Again, running this massive machine that could be dozens of cars long with one of your limbs in complete inoperative condition. That shouldn't be a thing anyone has to do, least of all a rail worker. But I think there is this reluctance to understand, and the the right-wing and neoliberals have been very, very good about selling this point. There's a reluctance to understand that even collectivized into things like unions and organizations and things like that, worker power still doesn't match Jeffrey Bezos. It still doesn't match Elon Musk's, though who knows how much longer that'll last at this point. Uh, It doesn't match any of these billionaires, and it doesn't match the state in power. So the state having agencies like the NLRB, having the power to impose an agreement that theoretically Congress or the president could have tried to impose the agreement with favorable terms to the workers. Those are supposed to be balancing factors. And by not using that, and I want to be completely clear here, I have to take the rail workers, what I've been told, at their word to some extent, but I, I really do think that in not trying to do that, Biden and Democratic leadership abdicated their responsibility to rail workers. They left them to twist in the wind. And the fact that Biden did his little, well, you know, I'm the most pro-labor president ever, but I think in this one particular time where I think his press secretary said, let's call it what said something like he was being the president for all Americans or something like that. Yeah. A lot of those Americans also deserve paid sick leave. Joe Biden knows that because Joe Biden promised to get them that. And in the first major test of that promise, Joe Biden failed. And this is yet another example of how empty all of that 2020 rhetoric about restoring the soul of America or whatever the hell it was. It turns out the soul of America is the exact same. It just doesn't say any of the rude stuff that the previous administration said but it still sides with the same companies, the same rich people, and it always, always sides against the worker. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about more angles of this uh, agreement such that it is. And we'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined by Noah. All aboard! And Lou. Hey, guys. <laughs> As we get the show back on track, um, there it is. We've been hey. talking about um, the railway strike that wasn't, um, you know, railway workers and their unions had been threatening to strike, and 
shut down America's freight railways, uh, you know, early in December. But that was averted last week after President Biden said, no, you're going to take this deal and like it, um, more or less. I want to talk a bit in this segment just about more aspects of this deal. And, well, why is it that the Biden administration has say so here? What's the deal with that? Noah, you touched on it a bit in the first segment. But, um, you know, there's this Railway Labor Act, which dates back to 1926. And this gives the federal government the ability to you know, effectively serve as mediator in negotiations between the railway companies and their workers. And this actually predates the NORA, the law that oversees most other workers in this country and what their labor rights are. And so some of its technicalities and rules for how the process should work look different. And in this case, it seems like letting Congress decide these matters favors the companies. What, what, I'm sorry, federal law favors yeah. corporations? Mm-hmm. That can't be right. Yeah. Um, one thing I did want to mention, and I want to mention it because the reason that this linguistic point uh, hit home with me is that I remember this from our Pinkertons episode, but people mentioned that the language of averting a rail strike makes it sound like it's a hurricane, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's like it's a natural disaster that doesn't really have any human agency behind it or anything like that. And we know, Ryan, from our Pinkertons episode that we did ages ago, episode like 72 or something, that the Pinkertons and other union busting firms consider labor unrest to be on the same level as natural disasters and terrorism. We know that because they put it in big fancy font over the globe in their commercials that we watched for that episode. And turns out that federal government has very similar feelings about it. So I I think, you know, I, I know this is nitpicking, but it's, it's one of those things where it kind of hit like, you're right. That is how they think of it. Well, it's not just the federal government, but it is also a lot of mainstream media outlets using that language of averting a rail strike. That is, you know, they could have chosen different verbs. They could have said, you know, imposes an agreement upon workers or denies their request for sick leave. You know, something that would actually point to the stakes for the workers rather than the stakes for the capital E economy. Yeah, but, but then the press secretary would laugh at you and you don't want that, so can't have that. Also, for the record, like a a natural disaster is not something you can avert by des, like not design, but by nature. I hate how that turned out, but like you can't really avert a hurricane or a tornado or a landslide or do any of those things. Like uh, a strike is something that that is not a natural disaster. It is created by the choices that people make in these situations. Uh, just want to state the record there. I think there's, hmm. uh, uh, I've <clears throat> lost my train of thought. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
Right. But something I wanted to bring up was also the timing of Biden's uh, letter to Congress coming shortly after uh, 400 groups, including the Chamber of Commerce, wrote a letter of their own urging Congress to impose such a deal. Um, This is an article from Reuters uh, where uh, headline, they urge U.S. lawmakers to take immediate steps to block potential rail strike. Um, this, these groups include the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the National Retail Federation, American Petroleum Institute, National Restaurant Association, you know, all the villains you might expect. I was going to say, yeah, the, this is the rogues gallery of American society. Like every single one of these people is irredeemable. It's almost remarkable. The Reuters article actually has some uh, helpful numbers just for the sort of scale of the impact we'd be looking at. Uh, Quoting here, a rail traffic stoppage could freeze almost 30% of U.S. cargo shipments by weight. Uh, And then it goes on to say, stoke inflation and cost the American economy as much as $2 billion per day by unleashing a cascade of transport woes affecting U.S. energy, agriculture, manufacturing, healthcare, and retail sectors. Which, of course, if you know anything about organized labor and how it works, is the point. Like, the ability to have this sort of impact is not something that most workers have. And... So if they're going to have that power, that ability at their hands, you should probably treat them better. You should treat them with the respect they deserve. You know, this gets back into the essential workers debate during the um, you know last couple of years of COVID, where you know we talked about people as though they were heroes, and then expected them to work for the very unheroic conditions and wages that they'd been receiving previously there's a mismatch there that's right and i hope that people see through it this time because it was very dumb last time it's not every time that they talk about of course it would be a disaster that's kind of the point like in in coming at christmas yeah it would ruin christmas whoop-de-doo maybe you should give these guys some sick leave and time off that's all there is to it like it, it's really that simple and you don't have to jump through hoops and force them to take a contract that they don't want to take uh, when they haven't negotiated for it necessarily. Like this is ridiculous. Well, the thing is that the everyone from Biden on down and then, of course, the, the railway companies, what they're betting is, and I think, unfortunately, they're betting correctly, that when you see the, and we've talked about this with sectors like, you know, professional athletes and so on, but that if the numbers of this tentative agreement become known to people in general, people by and large are not going to side with the rail workers because number one, Christmas is ruined. And now you have to explain to your kid why their presents aren't getting in on time and whatnot. And as we all know, over the last several years, anytime parents, especially middle and upper class parents, um, have to explain anything to their kids, they come close to committing war crimes. So that already there, that that's a real problem, number one. Number two, most people are not going to know, like not going to understand the centrality of paid sick leave to this thing, because again, they're not going to put themselves in the shoes of somebody being called in to run a train when they're like, you know, hacking up a lung. They already don't do that for like restaurant workers. 
I, I don't know why they would do it for, for you know, uh, rail engineers or people who are putting up drywall in the yards or whatever. And third of all, I think the bet that they're making, the third reason I think it's fundamentally correct, is that a lot of people are not exactly worse off necessarily than rail workers, but they get paid less. And they may have, you know, they, they may have better working conditions, but they're not going to see it that way. And there is a lot of, for lack of a better term, like labor jealousy or labor envy, where you only see the good parts of somebody else's job, like what they have on you. And that's used to pit us against each other instead of what it should be, which is a source of solidarity that we all get screwed in different ways. I think the better term might be negative solidarity. You know, the idea nice. that I have it bad. So you should too. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a rhetorical imbalance in all of this where the workers are treated as though they have agency and they could choose not to risk uh, all this damage to the economy. Whereas the companies are treated as though they are on rails and can do nothing else but to play this game of brinksmanship with their workers and to, you know, we could just as easily frame this as a matter of companies willing to tank the American economy rather than give their workers seven days of paid leave. But instead, that agency in all of these articles is placed on the workers and their unions because ultimately it would be their choice to strike. Workers are seen as individuals and companies are seen as forces of nature. Absolutely right. Particularly ironic given how many of these articles have photographs that are just of trains with no one working on them. I think it was, I forget which media outlet it was that did have two workers and it was like a notably right-wing outlet, but it was like two engineers working on the back of a train. So yeah, uh, media has definitely been doing some kind of like, not sure how much of it has been subconscious, but definitely pushed to at the same time as, as you point out, assign all of the choice in this to the workers instead of pointing out that ultimately whatever happens from here, real corporations are to blame and not to credit. Um, they have at the same time been doing everything possible to make us think that, you know, rail workers are essentially Thomas the tank engine um, and that they're not actual human beings that have to, you know, drive to work. You mentioned in the last segment, uh, you know, our lead car, if you will, Ross having to be on short notice where they have, I think they have like an hour to get to work or two hours to get to the, the train if they're on call and they're told they have to go run. So it's, it's not a long period of time. I mean, if you're in the middle of, I don't know, eating dinner, watching a movie, you know, that kind of thing, you, you literally don't, uh, if, if you're next on the rotation sheet, you can't really plan a life around that. And, I think a lot of people um, really don't don't think about that kind of thing as long as they're not the ones experiencing it. There was a language used by uh, some people defending Biden's actions here of uh, talking about how, you know, eight of the unions involved had voted to approve the deal. The fact that omits that the four unions that had voted against it constituted 55% of the overall workers involved, you know, a majority of the workers effectively voted against this deal. There's been a lot of work by uh, Biden and Democrats to contort themselves into being pro-labor while also 
axing a tremendous amount of union workers here. Which is not the first time Biden's been involved with an administration that screws over rail workers, because when he was vice president uh, under Obama, there was an executive order signed to mandate that all federal contractors give their employees at least seven paid sick days. Uh, And I'm sure you know exactly where this is going at this point in the episode, but he specifically exempted railway companies from doing so. This, despite the fact that they are federal contractors, there was some uh, disagreement on that. Some journalists were like really uh, pushy about it and did not seem to understand what a federal contractor is and seemed to think that it was a federal employee, which is not the same thing. Should be, but isn't, because we don't believe in a public sector in this country. So very wild. Two Biden-involved administrations and uh, two specific screws you to railway workers who, not to put too fine a point on it, Joe Biden depended on to get home and to work during his entire tenure in the Senate. He was the Amtrak guy. He was passenger of the month. That was his whole bit when he was there. And then, you know, the moment he he had a chance to show his appreciation for these people who kept him safe for like, what, 40 years or something? He stabbed them, frankly, stabbed them in the back. Maybe he makes a weird distinction between passenger rail and freight rail. Who could say? We've talked in the past about how there's the image of being blue collar and then there's like actually being working class and how those two things are different. Those two things, like people try to sell the appearance and the superficial aspects of working class as being substantially working class. And I think, you know, Biden and a number of other politicians have uh, succeeded at doing that for themselves and for their own purposes. I did find the um, Biden statement that I had been searching for, which uh, states, uh, quote, the agreement was reached in good faith by both sides. Again, you know, union leadership agreed to this, but not the workers, you know, which there has been some criticism of both within the rail unions and from outside of them that union leadership was far more okay with a tentative agreement. And that, I mean, obviously they were, they were at the bargaining table. They may well have felt that it's the best they could get, or they may have decided that it wasn't worth fighting anymore. And that, that is a real issue that we have in labor rights in this country that very often Union leadership does stand at odds with its members, and that is also not unique to this fight. We've talked before on this show about how uh, the concerns of teachers were poo-pooed by the Biden administration because Randy Weingarten is a close personal friend of his, so he doesn't have to care. Uh, The AFL-CIO, one of America's uh, longest tenured and most famous union coalitions, had a whole 24 hours of saying not a damn thing because... They didn't want to upset Biden before finally saying that they supported the rail workers' demand for paid sick days, but not that you know it should be imposed as part of the agreement. So when you have all too often leadership that can essentially say, yeah, there's a limit to how much effort I'm going to put in on behalf of the members that I'm supposed to be working for, then the phone call is coming from inside the house at that point. I mean, they they 
yeah, the everyone teamed. It it feels almost as if everyone teamed up on one side of this to leave the rail workers on their end by themselves and without support. And uh, now they're looking to the rest of us to to provide that. But that's sec three stuff. This is maybe a tangent to our current conversation, but there is uh, something here to how the dysfunction and how our government works allows uh, people to say one thing while functionally doing another. Um, because we have, uh, just in how the mechanics of this agreement was imposed, again, Congress voted both for the agreement and for another seven days of sick leave. And then a majority of senators voted for the agreement and an additional seven days of sick leave. But it falls because, you know, the filibuster exists and you need more than a majority. Democrats were able to vote and say, hey, I supported this without actually thinking or expecting that would become reality. It's worth noting uh, six Republicans also voted for paid sick leave here. And that likely would have changed if that margin were to have changed the outcome. You know, we know how Republicans will um, pose as, uh, again, blue collar working class allies while imposing policies that are anything but the filibuster here gives Democrats the perfect out. They can say all the right things here and not actually deliver on those things. Um, To give one example here, this is a statement from Pelosi after Biden's statement. Um, Quote, as we consider congressional action, we must recognize that railroads have been selling out to Wall Street to boost their bottom lines, making obscene profits while demanding more and more from railroad workers. Correct, William. All good so far. We are reluctant to bypass the standard ratification process for the tentative agreement, but we must act to prevent a catastrophic nationwide rail strike. You know, all on board with the workers, all on their side, but we can't actually, you know, give them what they want. We can't actually uh, take their side in the end. You you might say when the chips are down, they uh, conduct themselves differently. <laughs> yes, you might. That one felt a little engineered. Oh, that's good. Yeah, had to drive that one a little hard. We're going to derail the segment if we uh, go on like this too much further. Um, do, do we have uh, thoughts to continue on or perhaps maybe we could take a break here and uh... any, any final puns yeah i i did have one thing to say on this particular subject the thing about sort of the interplay which is that you know i know that this is ultimately the perfect setup for the democrats they get to walk out of a midterm election having performed uncommonly well and then poop the bed in great fashion when the railway workers ask them to but you would think that on some base level, it would be so embarrassing to let Ted Cruz pose as a member of the white working class. You would think <laughs> it would be a shame to let Marco Rubio pretend he's more of a worker than you. 
like <laughs> on some level and we know that Joe Biden is a man driven by truly outsized levels of pettiness. We know that about him. You would think that if they they must he must not know because I'm telling you right now that if you showed him what those two have been saying, he would immediately try to get everybody back into session so they could pass the agreement with like 23 sick days just to own those two. And that has stuck in my craw this entire time, because on some level, how are you not, how does that not hurt you? How are you not walking around the earth knowing that you did that? Sorry, just, it's been on, it's been on my brain this entire segment. There are certain people who are all too eager to buy into the shtick of Marco Rubio when he talks about uh, uh, taking on Amazon and big business because, you know, they're too, quote, woke for his liking usually or, you know, stuff like that. But it is to a certain degree, Democrats leave the door open for people to pose as, you know, the real defenders of the working class to outflank them in this way even if it is entirely superficial and hollow, you know, you know, there's a way you could avoid this. Like Noah, you said, you know, simply give the workers what they want. And then you won't have, uh, Ted Cruz trying to be the bigger friend of workers than you. At any rate, um, This segment is rolling into the station and we're going to take a break. We're going to maybe change conductors. We'll, um, you know, see who needs to use the bathroom. I don't know. (laughs) We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back aboard the Punching Out Express. I'm Ryan, joined today by <laughs> Lou. so disrespectful <laughs> yeah god uh, we're fine, we, we're we have to laugh to keep from crying you see um uh, we've been talking this episode about uh, how uh, there will not be a strike by railway workers at least not a legal one owing to the fact that the biden administration and democrats in congress imposed upon them an agreement that uh, union leadership had agreed to with railway companies back in late August, early September, which does not afford those workers any sick leave. Uh, This was a particular bone of contention for workers and the reason cited for why most of them voted against the agreement that they will now regardless have to agree to. The third segment of our show is typically where we try to find some reasons for hope. And I I think if we're going to do that here, I think there has to be something said for the appeal of sick leave as a political 
goal, as something that we could shoot for, not just for rail workers, but for all workers, because God knows in the United States, we don't have enough of it. This can maybe be a jumping off point if, you know, the last two years haven't been enough for elevating the importance of sick leave as a demand in the American worker. Yeah, I would really think that post-pandemic, we we should be doing everything in any power anywhere to uh, make sick leave mandatory for all industries, all workers, regardless of number of hours they work, regardless of the industry that they work in and, and anything like that. Um, there was a Jacobin article from... 20, this month um, by Liza Featherstone uh, that talks about how sick leave did have an impact on the number of people who died in the pandemic. Um, one quarter at the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020, one quarter of private sector workers in the country had zero paid sick days. Um, the average number at, at that time was eight days. And things are maybe a little bit better now, but it's not consistent and it's not consistent across all industries or anything like that. But what's important there, number one, from the sort of mathematical point of view, is that workers with paid sick leave reduced COVID deaths, reduced emergency room visits, reduce other kinds of like healthcare that is expensive, essentially, because that's where insurance companies have you over a barrel the most. And you know, not having the ability to take time off from work to deal with those problems substantially reduces that threat. But what's most important is that like with everything else, during the pandemic, the state and corporations, our actual governments, had to do a bunch of stuff to keep workers alive so they could chug along. And now they're trying to roll all of that back because they have realized, even if most American workers haven't yet, that um, that's not going to change and that people want their sick days and they want to be able to take vacations because now they know that the next pandemic might roll around and they might die without ever getting to take that trip they want. They want health care. They want good health care more than you know high deductible health plans. They want an education for their kids. They want investment in public spaces. Um, and I know I'm getting way too general and this should probably be the closer, but still the point is they are trying to pull all of this back because they know that workers want more. You might say that they, it's almost like a, I don't know, a runaway train at this point. And they have to pull out all the stops in order to try and restrain it. And I don't think it's going to work, but God knows that the Democrats and Republicans are doing their level best to make that happen. And that's where I think the rail workers have, I mean, it is a choice, even if media is portraying it as the only choice in the equation, but they do have a pretty tough choice to make here. I think there is a degree to which um, the idea that workers should have paid sick leave is, um, if you'll forgive the pun, gaining steam in the U.S., uh, Featherstone's article notes that, uh, quote, New Mexico passed a law this summer requiring employers to give w- workers one hour of sick leave for every 30 hours work, which means that they can get up to eight days a year. 
Colorado and Virginia have also mandated sick pay, bringing the number of states that do so to 17. I imagine that you can sort of picture for yourself which 17 states those might be. I know New York mandates it now. This is good that at least at the state level, this is happening, though 17, a far cry from 50, worth saying. You would think it'd be more popular. I mean, it's not just regular leave, it's sick leave. Yeah, but there's a difference between what is popular if and what actually gets done. To get back specifically to the rail workers and their um, such circumstances here, you know, we've talked about this as, you know, the imposed agreement will take away their ability to legally strike. But we've said in the past, I'm punching out that there are no illegal strikes, just unsuccessful ones. There are a lot of circumstances in which technically actions done by labor unions in this country have been against the law. And nevertheless, because their tactics, you know, used the leverage they had available to them, they went not only unpunished, but were rewarded for having done so. Even with this agreement in place, still the chance that workers might not go along with the plan. They might uh, throw a wrench in the works. Yeah, so there's there's definitely... I'm not going to speculate on the likeliness of it happening, of the rail workers actually going on strike. Um, but anything's possible. I think it'd be kind of rad if they did. Uh, show your power when you got it. There's also something that came up uh, in my conversation with uh, Ross of, you know, the we talked about how railroads have been cutting staff for the past couple decades now, and the exact numbers elude me at this moment, but Ross also noted that cutting staff doesn't always mean you fire someone. It might mean that someone left and simply weren't replaced. You know, this is something that's come up in other industries over the last couple of years where, you know, nobody wants to work anymore because you made conditions so bad that people left and, oh, all of a sudden you don't have enough help. And, and that's something that has happened in the railroad industry to some degree. Obviously, people have been fired and lost their jobs unwillingly. But, you know, people have left it for better alternatives or at least alternatives that seem better. There is a quote at the end of the NPR article I mentioned earlier. Um, it's by um, Matthew Weaver again. He's a railroad carpenter. And. The article says he expects to see a wave of departures once the back pay and bonuses are paid out. Quote, in Toledo, where I live, there's refinery jobs, there's trucking jobs, there's many other crafts out there that pay better and they get respect from their employer, he says. That's the problem. Working conditions, attendance policies, lack of respect, militant discipline, we're really suffering here. And so we might come upon a solution where all this effort was undertaken to quote, avert a rail strike only to drive out the workers keeping the railroads running anyways. There's a risk of this backfiring. Since when do uh, people in power think forward about anything? Any any action that they've taken in the past however many decades could back, could backfire, but the, the trick about solidarity is it, it takes courage. And 
it is hard to ask, especially around the holidays for uh, all of your fellow workers to walk off a job that they can't guarantee they're going to get back. Um, so I get it if they don't strike, but it would be really cool if they did. And I think if they did, it would be actually incumbent on the rest of us to get into those arguments because there are going to be a whole lot of people who are going to be real mad and real loud that again, their kid's toy or uh, the, you know, uh, whatever the dinner that they were planning or whatever it is, didn't get their own time. And because the one sacred act in American society is consuming, they're going to make it known how angry they are. And a lot of these people are going to be people who have paid sick leave. A lot of these people are going to be people who are not on call 24-7. In fact, I would venture to say the vast majority will, will be because that's not a requirement for almost every other job in America. And it's going to be our job as their fellow workers to openly say how full of BS you have to be and how much these people will not get about it. This is something we already should have been doing, to be fair, but I know that people are really reluctant to, and I understand why. We don't want to lose you know, the few bonds that we may have managed to craft through years of effort at our workplaces. We don't want to anger people for no reason, but this time there is one. There's a very good one, and part of the reason, if they decide not to strike, it may not be a major one, but part of the reason they will choose not to is because they know a lot of people are going to be angry at them that aren't right now. And it's our job to explain why that anger shouldn't go to Matthew Weaver or to Reese Murtaugh, especially. It, it shouldn't go to any of these people who are being quoted. It should go towards the freight rail lines that forced this to happen. And it should go towards Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi for selling out rail workers when they had a chance to back them. I think that's well put and a good way to end this episode. Um, for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.